Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast for busy pediatricians who want to better understand children's emotional health and behaviors and gain the skills and knowledge to help them thrive. I'm Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician. I see patients every day who struggle with depression, anxiety, and even suicidal thoughts, and I know you see these kids too. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome Dr. Mark Sloan today. He is a board-certified pediatrician and adolescent medicine specialist. Dr. Sloan is a statewide expert in the diagnosis and treatment of pediatric disorders of mood, behavior, learning, and attention. He is the medical director of the Children's Trauma Assessment Center at Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo. Mark's special interest is in traumatized children and those prenatally exposed to alcohol and other substances. He has a long history in trauma-informed training and consultation. Please welcome Dr. Sloan. I want to welcome Mark Sloan today. Mark is a really dear friend and brilliant clinician, and I just wanted to bring him in because he has taught me so much about kids and emotional health and really mentored me over time, and I welcome Mark. I appreciate you doing this. Great to be here, Leah. This is exciting, and I'm so glad you're doing this, and I'm glad to be part of it. So um, we're going to just hop in because I know Mark and he and I can talk for hours. We're going to try and make it more manageable bite, but I just want to open it up into how you got started in this. You know, what's, what's your backstory on this? Yeah, well, I grew up in central Michigan and went to college in Grand Rapids. And then I went out to Montana for a year for grad school and met my wife out there, luckily, and came back and went to MSU DO school. And then trained in St. Louis and at a DO residency that involved some uh, electives at St. Louis Children's and St. Jude's in Memphis and St. Louis University. And I came to practice in Southwest Michigan in Cass County. I had a National Health Service Corps fellow scholarship. So I was, I was the only pediatrician in the county, my first job. And that was back in the day, of course, that uh, we didn't have a lot of office training. I only had two weeks of office in my residency in our program. It was almost all hospital. So I really wasn't ready for practice like I thought I would be. I was ready for a hospital piece of it. But what was intriguing to me was the behavioral kids were the kids that I enjoyed seeing. And if I had this kind of running joke with my nurse Normal kids are boring, is what we used to say, because the last thing I wanted to do was listen to a parent brag about their perfect kid. I was always more drawn to the kids that were in the office, you know, in trouble. That's kind of was me when I was in middle school, especially. But by 1984, my third year of practice, I was doing quite a bit of ADHD work, and it just kind of took off. And I started talking to schools, and I got a lot of referrals. And I realized after a bit that I'm probably not going to be able to continue being in a small town as the only pediatrician. And I eventually interviewed with your group, you know, in Kalamazoo, and that was a big moment for me and exciting. But then I actually was a lot nervous about moving to the big city, you know, so to speak, and trying to figure out if I could do it there. But I was still um, doing more and more behavioral work. 
And as you know, after a few more years, I finally realized I was I needed more training. So I went back and did a fellowship in adolescent medicine in Kalamazoo at Michigan State's branch campus. And that ended up being mostly behavioral. It was kind of a neat setup because I didn't have to do the whole adolescent fellowship. Then that was before they made it more rigid. So I got to mainly do behavioral. And it was really nice. I got to learn all about the DSM-4, which had just come out and was um, anxious to do more work in the office with behavioral, but had this seven-year detour because we kept losing docs, as you remember. We couldn't, uh, I wasn't able to just do behavioral, although I was doing more and more of it. Then I finally went on my own as a private practice uh, behavioral pediatrician and wasn't sure if there'd be a market for it. And uh, sure enough, there really was. And we were talking before we turned on the mic, the recorder, about about that, where, where do kids go when they've got mental health and behavioral issues, but they're not severe enough to have psychiatry. And I always felt I was kind of this middleman. You know, I would see a lot of the kids that were too complicated for primary care, but not really sick enough to be a psychiatry patient. And then we called that tier two uh, as a, uh, you know, in the school world, it kind of, it's kind of those middle kids that are complicated, but not too bad. Put that, note, there wasn't psychiatry to send them to either. Right. And, and certainly, I mean, the community that we're in is, you know, about 100,000 people. And, you know, the rural areas around us, there's nothing. So these kids keep coming to see us. Surprisingly yeah. little uh, psych backup. And when I retired my private practice, and I, you know this drill, I had about 400 kids I was following. And a hundred of those kids were sick enough that I needed to send them to psych and I had to send them to 17 different places because there just wasn't very many. And I ended up sending lots of them back to primary care. And then I started working in the, at our trauma center at Western Michigan university in 2000 when I was still in primary care practice. And it started out being something that was intriguing to me. I didn't really think it would take my life over when I signed up for it but I found it to be really the perfect combination of kind of social work and speech and language and OT and, and medicine. It was, we had all those people on our team and I learned tons from them. And, and I started realizing that I was an integral part of the team because nobody there had any idea about the medical piece. And I thought, well, they must know what ADHD looks like. And I realized that a lot of times we were treating kids in our, or at least seeing kids in our center, and nobody had mentioned that this kid just had flagrant ADHD issues that were not being addressed, but he also had prenatal exposure to stress and drugs and alcohol and significant complex trauma. And yet nobody seemed to understand that they all mattered. And so my kind of mantra turned into this, I call it embracing complexity. Like we have to look at all, all of those. We can't just be genetic loading. You know, like the psychiatry world is very interested in genetics and, you know, is, the, is there really bipolar in the family or is, is there, you know, how bad was that depression? Was it inherited? Was it just situational? Was that anxiety just because there is issues or how much of that of that was, genetic and and the ADHD issue became very clear to me 
in working with adolescents that ADHD and substance abuse were married. You know, we see a lot of that together. And I realized that nobody else was really doing that. And even when we went to University of Washington for fetal alcohol syndrome training back in 2001, it was very clear that the hierarchy up there, the, the leadership, did not get what trauma was. And they couldn't figure out why we kept talking about traumatized kids. And we were there to learn about prenatal exposure to alcohol, but they didn't actually know that much about drugs either. And we found that so many of the, of the moms in the child welfare system were, were having multiple substances that they were using during pregnancy, and they were often exposed to domestic violence, and, and they had binge drinking episodes that maybe didn't cause the full FAS syndrome, but they had brain, we call it Swiss cheese brain. So that whole thing was intriguing to me. I did not realize that no one else was doing it. And we wrote a paper in 2007 where we put together our ideas and it was published. And we've had calls from like 39 different countries, mostly asking us, why doesn't anybody else talk about this? It's like, well, you know, we, uh, we don't know that. We just know that it's important that we don't really know how to address it. That's been the latest thrust of my career has been, how do you take the assessment findings that we are really good at at our center and translate those into interventions that will help the kids in their functional outcomes in everywhere, you know, school and, and home and extracurricular activities? How do, we, how do you make that leap? And it's not a straightforward thing. We've really struggled with that. And we do a lot of advocacy. And we, in fact, we've joked about adding an A to our name. We call ourselves the Children's Trauma Assessment Center. But we, we should add advocacy because that's what we really are really good at. We do a lot during the week, calling social workers, calling therapists, calling schools, and trying to help them understand what the essence of that child is. And one of the things we're really good at is capturing the child on, on a report so that somebody that doesn't know them can read the report and say, wow, I, I get this kid after reading what you wrote. So that's been my kind of latest chapter of my career is how do you do that working across systems? And we're really, so I, I talk about top down meets bottom up, you know, how do you change systems? But also, how do you give docs, especially weaponry, you know, so to speak, in the clinic so they can build resilience and make a difference and use the power of the relationship between the pediatrician and the patient and the parents? How do we, you know, kind of use that and, and kind of parlay that into better success and outcomes? You know, if I'm a pediatrician that's listening I'm thinking this is, you know, the cat in the hat, this mess is so big and so deep and so tall, you know, how do I do that? And, you know, I'm thinking, okay, I know how to do like ADHD and basic stimulants, you know, and the hard part gets to when things don't go well and what do I do next? And I don't know, the longer I've been doing this, you know, what I found is, Medication is like the small part of it. It's important and it can be helpful sometimes, not always, but there's so many other things. And it's like, how do you weave that into like a busy day when you're seeing 25 kids? <laughs> yeah, that's the, the million dollar question. 
we've worked on a medication paradigm, you know, since 2011. It's basically brain-based meds for kids with trauma and prenatal exposure. And it's been interesting because we're trying to de-emphasize the mental illness part because one of the things we say often is severe behaviors do not automatically equal severe mental illness. And yet when a child clears a classroom, you know, we've got, you know, six-year-olds that do that in our some of my consulting. And the panic that comes is palpable, especially if the, if the kids has an active CPS case or is in foster care. When those things happen, it's amazing how it ends up being, um, you know, the next step is a, a placement change. And the child now is blaming themselves for blowing it with their last foster home, even though they're young and they shouldn't, but they do. And yet when meds are necessary, if you can do them in an optimized way, we've, you know, you and I talked about this, when therapists don't realize what meds can do and they see it and they go, wow, this kid's much easier to work with now. I don't know what you did, but wow, he's much more engaged and he's much more able to handle talking about his story. And we hear it from OTs, we hear it from speech therapists. And so if there really is a genetic risk for mental illness, such as ADHD or anxiety, the two main ones that we seem to focus on, if you don't do that, you can fight uphill a lot. But I think the trick is not sitting on it too long and not being, my, my old problem was I used to just, I didn't want to stop. I wanted to tweak, tweak, tweak and keep playing with it, thinking there was a holy grail payoff. And now I'm much quicker to say, let's just leave it there and see what we got. And let's not get too embedded in this. But uh, what I've been trying to get primary care docs to do, especially in my work up in the northern Michigan, in the, in the Upper Peninsula, you know, there's no pediatricians in a lot of the counties I work in at all. So the family docs are not really wanting to do this, but yet they often don't have any issue treating adults with mental illness you know, especially mild to moderate cases, but they get nervous treating kids and they need direction, but they're not getting it from anybody. And if you end up assuming psychiatry is the answer, then when psychiatry sees kids, they often go to their, their go-to strategies are often assuming that mental illness because the kids got severe symptoms. So it's kind of a catch-22 in a way, but we're, we, we want that to be handled early if we're going to do it. But what we've really been trying to focus on more lately is uh, our mantra is tools for schools. What can we give teachers in the classroom to help make things safe for the kids that are impacted by trauma? And do you think, so on one end, we're kind of talking about the spectrum of kids that are highly traumatized. You know, I sort of call it messy family. You know, it's it's complicated. And then on the other end, which I don't think honestly happens that often, and it's often a blessing when it does, is like the simple, super hyperactive kid that you prescribe a stimulant, it's like magic, the light switch went on and everything's great. Right. But then there's those kids in the middle that, you know, there may not be a big trauma history, but there is a lot of dysregulation. Do you think this model applies to that in the middle? Because that may be the bulk of the kids that we're seeing, although maybe there are really traumatized kids and we're not even thinking about it and we're missing that piece. I think it does. In fact, when I put the med model together, I realized when I was doing it that it didn't matter what the diagnosis was. 
the diagnosis for you know those are artificial constructs. We were lo- looking at a brain-based model, and my old life used to be complex kids with normal families. That's what I saw in my private practice, and lots of really nice families that were really struggling with maybe the third kid in their family. And I can't tell you how many times I'd see that the, the older two kids were sometimes lots older. I had a lot of oops kids, you know, 10 years younger than number two and brothers in law school, sisters in med school. And the patient I'm seeing is 12 and he's uh, he's got a high IQ, but a 1.3 grade point average. And he's in sixth or seventh grade. And when I would see the siblings, and I started meeting with the siblings in the summer because I got the sense that the siblings were giving the parents grief because they weren't treating this third kid with the same rules as they got. And they thought they were being soft and they were letting him get away with things. And I would meet with these siblings and say to them, you know what? You lucked out. The genetic luck of the draw, you got neither ADHD or anxiety. Your sibling has both, you know, and your sister's anxious, but she's not ADHD. She's doing fine. In fact, her anxiety has helped her in med school because we all got a little OCD, as you remember, you know, just to kind of keep up with the, with the uh, organizational demands. But so I used to, and the kids would just kind of go, you were yelling at my sister. What was that? It's like, I wasn't yelling at her. Yeah, I'm glad you did because she's such a butt. You know, she just does not understand me. And she thinks that I don't try. And, and it was so interesting. Those kids were traumatized by the system. You know, you, when I think about it later, because they were, you know, the teachers often remembered their siblings. Like, oh, yeah, you're so-and-so's brother. Wow, you know, he was an amazing, outstanding student. You could see the kids sinking in the chair just while they were listening to the description. So when I got to SeaTac, I started realizing the kids that we were seeing there were the kids I was seeing in my private office with prenatal exposure and trauma on top of it. Then I realized, oh my gosh, this all matters. And a lot of the docs that I see now when I do my consulting I have to tell them that exact thing that you're talking about. You know, this will help you with your other families because we've got to get past the, you know, kind of being stuck with the diagnostic constructs that are not very good. And, and we've got to start thinking about the brain and use some tools that will help us do that. So it's been, it's been fun. I just need to write more about this because it's not something I'm seeing in the literature because it's so much of a, we're stuck with the DSM. We're stuck with all those kind of parameters that that we have to use to, you know, get our bearings. But I, I really feel like the brain-based model makes the most sense. And uh, that's what and I do think because of that, and I think one of the things that's unique to particularly pediatrics, but I think certainly family medicine too, is that what we're really good at is understanding child development. So I think we're really good at knowing what normal is and knowing what the outliers are. And the other thing is that we have these longitudinal relationships. And so I think that that is really supportive to those families because I know them, but there's also, I kind of know that, that development piece. And so that it's kind of a unique, position to be in and I think we're better than we think we are I, think I love we have that. A tool. I think we have tools to do way more 
I think we get stuck on if I don't know that it's going to be medication and I'm scared to use meds. So I don't really know what to do and I can't do it. I don't, I don't know what I'm doing, but you really do. Well, I think you're right. And I think what we don't realize is, and kids tell us this, we see kids in our office and we'll ask them, where, where's the safe place for you? Where do you feel safe? You're in foster care now. Is it, maybe it isn't your foster home, but, and they'll often say, I like my teacher. I like my school. That's what's been so hard with COVID and kids not being able to be there because we've really worried about an increase in domestic violence and child abuse and neglect. And it's, it's happened just like people were worried about. But they also will often say, my doctor. And we hear that more than you'd think. And, and, it was, and we, they'd say things like, well, you know, I, I know that shots hurt and all, but you know, it's always predictable. And there was something about that. I'd walk in the door, it smelled the same, and the fish tank was a little dirty, and it made me feel like I was okay because I, I could do a better job of cleaning it, or I really liked the nurse, and she always had the same goofy animal on her stethoscope, and it was great. And we, we have a program that we use called Real Life Heroes, which is a program for really severely impacted kids in residential. And it's, the whole program was set up to help kids remember somebody that they trusted. And it might have been a substitute teacher in the fourth grade or a baseball coach in fifth grade. And the whole idea was if you could get the kids to think about one person, then you could convince them that maybe there's another person like that you could listen to. And the doctor that set it up, Dr. Richard Kagan, who's now retired or allegedly retired in South Carolina, Richard would work really hard to find some of those people on Facebook. You know, he would literally find the person the kid was talking about and then come back with an email from the person and the kid would go, there's no way you found him. But I know it's him because I didn't tell you any of this on purpose because I didn't really trust you. And he remembered how good I was at baseball and that I was the best hitter. And, and that was eight years ago, man. How did you find that? And then you knew you had a, an entry point. Now you can start talking to, to Richard about some planning. How, how do we get you not to be part of the prison system, which is what the staff was betting on? Oh, that kid will be in jail in a year. And so, but I think pediatricians really are better at that. In fact, Andy Garner, who I know you're going to have on here later, and Andy's amazing, but he talks about relational health in his book, Thinking Developmentally. We love that concept. We've kind of embraced that. And, and I've been talking to, to pediatricians in the training programs I'm working with in Detroit. How do you parlay that strength? You know, pediatricians are, we always hear it. We hear it from, you know, people are mad at us because even parents, well, I've told him that 22 times and you told him once and he did it. It's like, yeah, the power of the pediatrician, there's something about that. You know, when you see it, I mean, first of all, that real life heroes is so beautiful and it's not hard stuff and nope. it's not a medication. You don't have to write a prescription for that. But nope. I also know how powerful, you know, over 30 years, I mean, I've gone to, you know, baby showers and weddings and graduations. I mean, honestly, if you can go to a graduation, man, the impact of that, I don't think I realized how much it meant to people, but they were astounded that you would come. Yeah. And, you know, it's just, it, those are simple things. And just that I know you, I care about you, 
you know, there's a lot of power in that. And I know that doesn't take away all the difficult behaviors when they leave my office. But, you know, I think you can have an alliance with the parent over, we're all in this together. My job is to help you help your kid because we all care about them, even in messy families. I mean, I've had that where, you know, the parents are eating each other, but I can say to them, you guys might not agree on stuff, but we all agree we care about your kid. So let's go there. You know, it's funny you said it about, about graduations. I remember I was at your birthday party a couple of years ago. I won't say how many years it was. But one of your friends came up to me and said, I didn't remember her. And she said, you know, you saw my son for just regular stuff, you know. And I'm, I'm kind of going, okay, I don't remember you or your son. But, you know, you, I always left with something positive. You always managed to do that. And I, I don't know if you knew you were doing that, but that I said, well, I'm kind of been accused of being Pollyanna about that, but you don't realize how much that matters. I've had many moms say that. I, my kid was nothing special. He wasn't a big problem, but you know, he liked coming to you because you remembered he liked blah, blah, blah. You know, you, he remembered you liked fishing and you would always say something about that. Of course, I had a sticky note in the chart saying, ask him about fishing that doesn't happen anymore with the EHR, but those are the things that you get good at when you train younger docs. You know, it's fun to tell residents, you know what, write a note to yourself in your phone. Now it's like, write a note saying, next time I see that kid, ask about his aunt, you know? And then the kid goes, my God, that's, I don't know how you did that, but how did you do that? And those things are resilience. One of the pillars of resilience is relatedness. And that's a, a, a one of the things that, that we know if, if a kid has one adult that's crazy about that kid, irrationally crazy, that can matter. That, that's enough. And Bruce Perry's work shows that. And now there's evidence that what happens in the brain when there's an emotional connection, we call them sacred moments at CTAC, when, when, think, when you're just feeling, wow, this kid's really talking to me, first time ever. Those things, literally synaptogenesis is happening in a minute. And if you have four of those sacred moments in an hour, it's permanent neuroplasticity. That's what healing from trauma is all about. And, and if meds help that happen, that's a great thing. But it's mostly about foster care workers, you know, the system people, juvenile probation officers. I can't tell you, when you get a good one of those, they're like gold. And we've got some in the, in the north. They're, they're better than the therapists at at connecting with kids and they know how to do it. And they, they jokingly will say, Hey, you know, the judge said you're mine for the, for six months. Let's really show him, you know, because he wants me to work with you and, you know, and you like weightlifting and I like, let's do that. You know, let's do something. And the kids go, yeah, why don't everyone, why doesn't everybody else do that? How come you do that? And how come the school's letting you come in and help me weightlift? It's like, because they know that this works because I've done it with other kids. Oh, I'm not the only one. But that's the fun part of relational health, I think. And that's what Andy's book you know, has those vignettes in there. Like, how can you do, a, like he said, 30-second encounter as part of a follow-up visit can lay the groundwork for the next visit where you're being able to emphasize with a mom that's got three kids under five from three different dads and she's looking like, you know, she's feeling crappy and, and yet you're not judging here. You're just saying, man, looks like 
what a day. Do you, do you, can I do something? And those things matter. I think pediatricians that they don't realize how powerful that is. And that's something that it's been fun to be part of that equation for them. And then to tell other places, you know, like don't underestimate the primary care person in this county because they should be at the table when you're doing systems change. They may not think they're supposed to be there, but they should be. And here's what they bring. I think that you touched on a couple things that I think over time make a huge difference and that's collaborating with other people. I mean, the minute I've reached out to a teacher or a therapist or a caseworker, and and I know that takes time, but it can be just so significant because what I see in the office and what I hear from the parent may be very different than the experience in the school. I mean, I think about one kid that we were having trouble with the stimulant medications, clearly hyperactive and had some other uh, developmental abnormalities. It was like an incredible change, but he wasn't eating. And so he was losing weight. You know, it was a big issue. I called the school and the teacher said, it is a, an amazing difference when he is on medication, he, but without it, he can't function. So I was able to work with the parent to come up, okay, what's our strategy? Because clearly medication, everybody could see it. Um, yeah. But again, it wasn't just, I'm going to write you a prescription. And then the onus isn't entirely on me either. And, oh and gosh, I think a lot cool. of what you're talking about is, you know, cheerleading for primary care and the people right. that are listening that one is you're not in this all alone. Two, you don't have to be a psychiatrist to make an impact. And three, you've got to use your, your peeps. Well, here's a way to exemplify that. So we, we've been doing these um, Zoom teleconferences, and this was weird. We did it before COVID. So we, had, we were trying to figure out, and this is Northern Michigan, how can we bring all sorts of players to the table on a follow-up visit and really get great miles per gallon. You know, how do we do that? And um, we had a, you know, a, I have a contract with one of the ISDs up there and they, to their credit, this is Sheboygan at Seagull Preskill. I'll just give them some props. They hired a full-time, she's basically a trauma coordinator. Her job title is student engagement consultant, but she is, responsible for coordinating all of our work with schools and docs in these three counties. So she coordinates all this, but we started doing these follow-ups of kids we'd already assessed in our model, which is a trauma screening, a trauma assessment. And the care manager nurses in the primary care offices up there are the links from the doctor's office to the school. And they've been great. They come to the school and they come with their laptop that has all the patients in it. The schools are in awe because the, the nurse is opening up her laptop. All the kids on our, on our list are in their system. She can look up their last doctor visit. She can read what the doctor said. And they're just like, this is so cool. I love this. And now the, the principals basically know that the way to talk to parents is to use the nurse as the intermediary when mom's coming in and saying, that dang doctor stopped my meds, text message from the principal to the nurse, within two minutes there's an answer, no show, last three appointments, he had no other option, he had to stop it. And now the moms will say to the principal, are you going to call that nurse before you were done with this meeting? Because like, if you're going to do that, I should probably tell you the truth. And 
So what's been interesting, we're starting, we're starting to do these follow-up visits. And we did one recently. We had 14 people on the call. And they were all, it was Zoom. It was wonderful. We had the care manager from CMH. We had the nurse from the psychiatrist from CMH. We had the primary care management nurse. We had the CPS supervisor. We had the probation officer. We had the school team and myself and the ISD. It was, and we got, it was a half hour. We got more done in a half an hour. It was nuts. And the, because everybody was there, we knew the nurse for the psychiatrist was going to go right back to her and tell her exactly what we, what we talked about. And we started realizing last year, these are really invaluable and we can dial them in. And so we really feel like that's the kind of connections that you need to do. Now, we just happen to have the, the kind of the Red Sea parted at the right time. We were able to do more than, than most. But, but it's our model now when I go places is to go in and say, okay, schools, you need to work with the docs. Docs, you need to work with the schools. Somebody, There needs to be a person in every school building that's the doctor liaison person. So the doctor's office knows the nurse can call this person cell phone to cell phone and get them on the phone. And so they don't have to wait. And they don't have to wait for the receptionist or the school secretary. And then the school knows they call this doctor's office. Here's the nurse we talked to. This doctor's office, here's the nurse. And it's been awesome because they start, they're starting to see that a powerful consortium is school.collaborative. You know, and then you connect that with other agencies, but that school. Those are the play, they're the familiar partners that are used to working together. And we just have to kind of use that and to parlay it into, you know, getting more and more folks involved so we can, you know, all with the kids best at heart. Well, and I think what's interesting about that model, one is I think it's increased with COVID because we're all trying all these Zoom applications. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had a caseworker joining me on a Zoom meeting by phone. I mean, I had her on FaceTime and, you know, it was kind of a crazy thing. The kid was okay with it. But I think you just mentioned a strategy because, you know, in a perfect world, we would have these amazing teams and you know, as a primary care person, you're like, how would I do that? How do I organize it? But one of the things that you said is, you know, if you have a care manager, if you're not fortunate to have a care manager, can you designate an MA, a nurse, a practice manager, somebody that represents you, ideally somebody with higher level training, but is there a point person that can be your contact person? And we're fortunate we have social work embedded, which is amazing. And To any of the pediatricians that are listening, if you're able to figure out how to do that, it, it's life altering. Yes, it but, is. but using other people besides just you, because if you try and make all these phone calls yourself, I'm gonna, having tried to do that, you'll be exhausted. <laughs> and it's not feasible. No. But there are some other ways you can delegate and make these connects. And, it's, and then ultimately it makes your job easier. Yeah, no question. Infrastructure building is the hard part. But once you get it down, and now I know that, you know, I, I worry about personnel because we've seen in small areas, somebody leaves and it's a setback. It's like, uh-oh, they can't leave. But um, yeah, you're right. Integrated care with a person that's really 
a, a behavioral health clinician that's really savvy makes it all the difference. And I think there's really got to be that the nurse, the, the, the therapist, and the doc. And I think that's the future of behavioral medicine in my mind is is that kind of setup because we're we're convinced that you know it's really got to be connections, but it also has to be you know, everybody's got to be at the table, but there's also got to be that kind of core group that really shines through. So we, we hear this all the time when we do, I just finished a six month CMH primary care school project up in Petoskey. And every week or every month that we did this, somebody would say, I can't believe I didn't know that. I can't, I don't believe how much, how little I know about the schools. I had, I heard CMH say that about five times. And these were high level administrators that were shamed. They're like, I feel horrible about this. I should know that. And the docs are in the room saying, I wish I knew all these people in these schools that you're talking about. I don't know that. I should, but I don't have time to do it. I got to get my nurse to meet you guys. And it was so fun to see that light bulb go on and it's like this is the key is how do you get everybody at the table without making people nuts because it's it is labor intensive i just had an aha it's like primary care has been traumatized by behavioral health and the answer is relational change by reaching out to other people to help us mend our own trauma Oh my gosh, it is. It's psychological safety in the doctor's office. You know, that's, that is true. I totally agree. And I've seen more than one CMH I've worked with over the years that they, and we talked about this too, Leo, that the appearance of collaboration doesn't make it collaboration. That's a Ross Green special. And how it looks doesn't matter as much as how it impacts. And that's one thing that we have been, and I've been lucky at CTAC to have access to lots of DHS directors have the, the, who are often the masters of collaboration because they have to. And especially in rural Michigan, some of the uh, DHS directors have been incredibly helpful to me because they know everybody and they know everybody's everybody and they do it so effortlessly. But the one place they'll often say to me is, yeah, I haven't been able to get the hospital to buy in. You know, I knew the old CEO, he was amazing. He retired and they brought in a corporate gunner and he doesn't want to talk to us he wants to talk about his hospital systems and he's always got a reason why he can't until the chips are down and somebody's tearing up his office and then they're calling us going get somebody out there right now and so that's been interesting when you start getting everybody to realize that we all benefit from doing it Mm -hmm. and yet it's it's hard it's hard to do it but it's so worth it well and it's it's also way more fun. I have to no say, I, mean, I, I totally honestly, agree. I mean, my hope for doing this podcast is just this very thing is to have these conversations. I mean, mostly because I'm a chatty person and I love to network. I mean, I've been blessed to meet so many people that I think are amazing. And I have several other people that are going to be on this podcast to have these discussions kind of to open our minds to reach out to the people that know, because you don't have to do this alone. You don't have to be um, a psychopharmacologist. There are so many other ways to do things. It's important. And one of the things that we have in Michigan and a lot of other states are these collaborations with child psychiatry, because 
there just that aren't that many of them. And uh, the University of Michigan has a, a cool program to kind of support us. I, I mean, again, it's it's not that they take it over. It's not that they're writing the prescriptions. It's kind of handholding and right. curbside consults. And you know, if we're all in this together, and they have come to appreciate how hard it is for primary care. When we first started that project with them, they could not believe the kinds of patients that we're managing. And right. that validation was so helpful for somebody to say, oh my God, you, this is really hard work. You're doing a great job. This is somebody a psychiatrist could see and I'd be like, yeah, I wish, but let me help you do this. And then over time, I got better at it. And, yep. and it's, you know, a it's still hard, but I know lots of other states have that. It's a model. Right. Um, you know, so there are these other things. And, and I think the other thing, it's really, everything is local. What do you have in your region? If you're from a big urban area, you may have different resources, but also different problems than if you're from a very small rural community, some of our rural states where, you know, there might be one or two child psychiatrists for the entire state. So right. you've got to figure out, you know, work what you got. And if you have an interest in this, it, it can be fun and extraordinarily rewarding. And you get to make friends with people. When I call University of Michigan and I'm, I recognize the doc and I'm like, hey, you know, Dr. Patel, how are you doing? And he knows me. I know him. We may not have met in person, but. Um, it's all about relationships. Yeah, right. Exactly. And, and not only for our patients, but for us too. Right. So. Uh, pretty good. I yeah, I know there's so much more we could talk about. And again, I think for people that were listening, hoping to get some medication tips, we'll do that too. I think that there's lots of opportunities and I'm hoping to bring on some child psychiatrists to you know, talk about some of the nuances of medications and where they can help you. But also, you know, Mark kind of brings this big sort of global transformational way to survive in primary care. And I so appreciate all the work that you do. And, you know, I just think you light a fire. Thank you. Mission accomplished. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Mark. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I want to thank Mark today. Oh my God, he is so amazing and so much fun. Mark and I have worked together for, gosh, over 20 years and we used to share an office and we just got into way too much trouble because we laughed all the time. He is just a brilliant person and has such an amazing understanding of neurodevelopment, fetal alcohol syndrome, toxic stress, and how trauma affects children. He has so much to share and I think we're just going to have to do part two, three, four, etc. One of the things I think he could share is his model of dysregulation, and I will leave that to another time for him to go into, and maybe some nuances of treatment, so for some nitty-gritty actual how-to practical tips and strategies. I really feel like at the beginning of this series of podcasts that I'm kind of giving you an overview and big picture of kids and kind of thinking about it from how children experience their emotions as opposed to applying a diagnosis and treating with a medication, although that's important too. So stay tuned, and I really hope that you enjoyed this. 
please, you know, let me know how you looked at this and what you thought and share with me feedback. And if you have other ideas, I would be super interested in that. I just want this to be helpful. I have had the good fortune to meet so many people that have helped me over the past 32 years. And I just want to be able to share their passion and ignite your own. So please go to the show notes. Mark is going to leave us some references and information and we'll go from there. I have a lot of awesome guests coming up. So come back and share this with your friends. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. I know how busy you are and I so appreciate your time. If this has been helpful, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. I would love to hear from you and any thoughts you might have about future topics. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together.